Matthew 16, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 12 this morning. Matthew 16, verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, that is Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began discussing it amongst themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I don't speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I don't know if you've read, but there are rumors of war. Rumors of war. In fact, I was with a a special ops guy on New Year's Eve, and he was telling me that he is anticipating that we will be at war in the next year. That was his anticipation. Now, I don't share that with you to scare you, but when you think about war, you immediately probably start thinking about who's on whose side. Who are our allies and who will be our enemies? You know, war draws people together. What who would normally be enemies or at enmity with each other, they might become allies because they have a greater enemy to fight. Now, this is the case with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees, we've seen already, they have declared war on Jesus Christ. They're trying to kill him. And now they have a very surprising ally in the Sadducees. The Sadducees, these two groups, Pharisees and Sadducees, they make up the Sanhedrin, which is the ruling council in Jewish affairs. Now, these two groups are normally at odds with each other. See, the Sadducees, we could call them the modernists or worldly religion. They do not believe in resurrection or immortality. They're not spiritual. They're more physical They have earthly interests, concerns like money, land, power, influence. They are 
the humanists that are Jewish by ethnicity, not by religiosity. I would associate them today with people who ascribe to name tag Christianity. I've talked about these folks before. That is those who, you know, identify as Christian. They might wear the name tag at church, but Monday through Saturday, they are no different than the world. They have worldly pursuits, worldly loves of wealth, health, land, power, comfort, and pleasure. They do not truly follow Jesus, much less love him. They love their idols. They are like the Sadducees. Now, on the opposite side of the spectrum, you have the Pharisees, who are the legalists, or works-based religion. They are opposite of the Sadducees in that they are very religious, in fact, overly religious. They overly They over-spiritualize everything. They add law to law. You don't eat right, you don't walk right, you don't wash right, then they declare you to be immoral. It's an external show, though, to impress and feel better about themselves. They are hypocrites that are Jewish by rigorous religiosity. We have people like this today, too, in American religion. It's full of legalistic religiosity. They uh, boast in the, in the good things that they do, that they're a good person. They believe that even by their good works, they can earn heaven. There are people that appear good and religious on the outside, but they have tr- no true heart for God on the inside. They are like the Pharisees. And so you could imagine the arguments in the Sanhedrin. Well, you guys are too worldly. On the opposite end, you guys are hypocrites. And they go at each other. But now, we see them united. See, worldly religion and works-based religion unites in opposition against Jesus Christ. They're on the same side, which is at odds, opposed to Jesus Christ, true religion, true faith. See, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing. And this teaches us our first lesson. Our first lesson is that no matter where you stand on politics, no matter how much you value or don't value the Judeo-Christian morality, whether you're conservative or liberal, if you're rigorous in your religious duties, or if you're at the bar getting drunk on Friday and coming to church on Sunday, it doesn't matter if you do not believe and truly follow Jesus, you're at odds with him. And you're together with them. Where do you stand with Jesus? With him? In him? Or against him? In worldliness or a works-based religious system? There's no neutral ground. There are those who believe. And there are those who live in unbelief. Jesus identifies these real threats of unbelief in this passage as he addresses Pharisees and Sadducees. And we need to beware, we need to watch out, we need to steer clear of these influences in our life. See, we want to be like like the blessed ones of Psalm 1. The blessed ones who don't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. We want to avoid those. We want to be like the blessed man in Psalm 2, who does not rage and set himself against the Lord's anointed but to be the one who kisses the Son and takes refuge in Jesus Christ. 
And so in order to do that and to be faithful, we need a first, first point in your outline, beware of the stubborn ignorance of unbelief. Beware of the stubborn ignorance of unbelief. Look back at verse 1. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. It's not that these Pharisees and Sadducees are just one miracle away from belief. That's not the case here. They're trying to test Jesus, to stump him, to prove him wrong. You know, some, sometimes people act like they're just one miracle away from believing. Oh, if God would just put a million bucks in my account, then I'll surrender to Jesus. Or if God would just take this problem away in my life, then I'll surrender to him. You know, health and wealth preachers prey on people like this. The problem is that they'll always leave you one more dollar away from your miracle. And you're stuck. One dollar away from a miracle, one miracle away from faith, you'll never believe. I remember praying as a boy. I don't know if you could relate. When I was a little boy, I would say, lie in my bed, I'd say, God, if you're real, move my Bible from this nightstand to this one while I'm asleep. Then I'll believe. Or I used to have stomach problems, get stomach aches, and I used to pray, God, if you're real, take this stomach ache away from me. I would test God. Testing God this way is not a sign that you're close to believing. It's actually a sign that you're further away in unbelief. The scriptures say, do not test God this way. Deuteronomy 6.16, Matthew 4.7, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, their motivation is to test Jesus, and that reveals their unbelief. It's not just that they didn't believe, but they were stubbornly ignorant in their unbelief. They didn't want to believe. And look at Jesus' response to them. He answers them in verse 2. He says, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You might be familiar with the sailor's poem. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning, sailor's warning. And then he says this, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. In other words, you guys are decent weathermen, but you are pitiful scholars. The signs of the sky, they are clear, yet they're only generally reliable. The signs of Jesus' time are crystal clear and 100% accurate. You have your head in the clouds, Pharisees and Sadducees, when the Son of God is standing right in front of you. What were the signs of Jesus' time? What did they see so clearly yet deny in stubborn unbelief? Let's review. First of all, Jesus fulfilled prophecy at his birth. He's in the royal bloodline. Jesus fulfilled prophecy and his ministry to the, uh, to the Gentiles of Galilee. Jesus taught with divine authority greater than the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus cleansed a leper. Jesus healed the paralyzed servant of the centurion. 
He fulfilled prophecy in healing all who were sick. He cast out demons. He calmed the storm. He made the paralyzed walk. He resurrected the ruler's daughter. He healed the blind. He opened the mouth of the mute. He healed a man with a withered hand. He fed 5,000, then 4,000. All these things Jesus did in public, in front of people. There's your proof. Yet they do not believe. Again, these men don't believe, not just because they're trying to, because they don't want to. It's a stubborn ignorance. And stubborn ignorance is a result of unbelief. An unwillingness to surrender, an unwillingness to break. You're seeing the clear truth right in front of you, but you don't want it. So what is really keeping these, sorry, these people, this generation, away from Jesus? Jesus tells us. He tells us what their problem is. And it's by what he calls them. Look at verse 4. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. See, these men are evil and adulterous. Double whammy. Well, first, to be evil is to be wicked. It's to be morally corrupt. And then you know what adultery means, at least as it pertains to marriage. Adultery is unfaithfulness. It's idolatry. And this is who Jesus says they are. This is who they are identified as. So what keeps these men from believing? What keeps them from trusting Christ as Lord and Savior? What is it that separates them from God? Is it really just one more miracle? One more sign? Or is it related to who they are? Evil and adulterous. Let me use an illustration from Scripture. How about the rich man and Lazarus? Do you remember this? Rich man and Lazarus dies. The rich man goes to Hades, to hell. Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, to heaven. And it was the rich man who looked up and he saw Abraham there. And he asked Abraham if he could go back to his family and warn them about hell. He said, man, if somebody goes to them from the dead, then they will believe. They will repent. And Abraham says this, listen. They have Moses, and they have the prophets. That's the word of God. And if they receive the word, and if they do not receive the word, I'm sorry, then they won't be convinced, even if somebody raises from the dead. That's the reality of unbelief. That's the reality of our deadness in our sins, is that we could see the greatest sign from heaven and still refuse it in stubborn ignorance. These Pharisees and Sadducees, they have the Word made flesh standing right in front of them. Jesus the Christ. And He's proven who He is. In fact, they would witness His resurrection. That is the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah that Jesus is referring to there is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just as Jonah, in a sense, died and was buried in the belly of the whale and then came out three days later, the Son of Man would die, be buried in the ground, and three days later, raised from the dead. This generation would witness that. Yet, they will remain evil and adulterous. 
they will still not believe. It's a stubborn ignorance, a refusal to believe. Beware of the stubborn ignorance of unbelief. You might be a skeptic here today. Friend, you don't need more proof of the existence of God or of the truth about Jesus. The proof is right in front of your nose. In the Word of God, the Word of God declares who He is. He is the King. He's the Messiah. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen His glory. We have viable, verifiable proof of His life, death, and resurrection. And some people act like they're just one question away. One difficult circumstance away from fully trusting Him. One miraculous proof away from believing. And in that sense, they blame God. Because if God doesn't deliver the proof, if God doesn't convince them, then it's His fault that they don't believe. Let me give you another illustration of the reality, friend. Listen. There is a chasm that separates you from God. You are on one side and there is a great canyon, if you can imagine, Think about the Grand Canyon between you and God on the other side. Why? Why is there a chasm, an an unsurpassable chasm between you and God? Is it because you need one more proof? Is it because you need one more convincing, verifiable fact from science or from anywhere else? Is that why there's a chasm there? No, no, here is why there's a chasm there. Jesus told us, we are evil and adulterous. The chasm that separates us from God is our own sinfulness. It's our own depravity, our own inability. We cannot earn the relationship with God. We can't cross in our own effort. We need a Savior. We need Jesus Christ, the man standing right in front of these men. To do the work that we could not do. To live the perfect life. To die as a sacrifice for our sins. And make a way for us to be right with God. That's what separates us from God. That's what separates us from belief. Is our own sin. And you need to recognize that. In order to believe. God needs to open your eyes to the truth of who you are without Him. Before you embrace Christ as your Lord and Savior. Beware of the stubborn ignorance of unbelief. Signs of stubborn ignorance. Excuse making, blame shifting, deferring, making your sin seem little. Don't do that. Fully embrace and take responsibility for who you are without Christ and then trust Him for salvation. When the Word of God exposes your sin, don't be like these men who stubbornly oppose it. Break, break under the sun. So beware of the stubborn ignorance of unbelief. Second point, beware of the destructive influence of unbelief. Beware of the destructive influence of unbelief. Unbelief is pervasive and it influences you. Psalm 1, again, says that a blessed man does not walk in the counsel of wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Why? Because those kinds of people are bad influences. They influence you astray. Their end is judgment and destruction. And let me tell you, they'd be happy to have you join them. 
Beware of their influence. James Montgomery Boyce writes in his commentary on this passage, he says, misery loves company and so does war. Those who stand opposed to Jesus Christ would love to have you standing with them opposed to him. They won't help you draw closer to God. They'll pull you away from him. That's why Jesus reiterates this serious warning. He says it twice. Look back down in the text. Verse 6. Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. That's an important warning because Jesus repeats it in verse 11. Look down. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The last time we talked about the leaven, if you remember, earlier in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus used that reference as a positive influence, referring to it as the positive influence of the Gospel of the Kingdom, that it would spread throughout the world and have influence, and eventually we will see the Kingdom come and the King's will be done. So when you think about leaven in bread or yeast... It is a rising agent. And you hide just a little yeast or a little leaven into a portion of the bread, and it will spread eventually and influence the whole lump. That's how yeast works. That's how leaven works. It's a clear illustration. And Jesus has used it before. It's an illustration of influence. Of influence and effect. So, Jesus in this context uses it to say, false teaching, worldly teaching, legalistic teaching, works-based religion, it has influence. It can influence people, and it actually is a destructive influence, right? Because you stand opposed to Jesus Christ. In fact, we see the influence of this false teaching already evident in the disciples. They're wrestling here with signs of unbelief, even though they had all the proof. So we see the influence take effect on Jesus' own men. That's why he warns them twice. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So in this passage, as we see this interaction with Jesus and his disciples, I see three signs of destructive influence. Three signs of destructive influence. Three signs that these men were being influenced negatively by the false teachers. The first sign of the destructive influence of unbelief is misinterpreting God's word. That's the first sign. Now, I'm not, when I say misinterpreting God's word, I'm not talking about minor doctrinal differences. On secondary matters that might cause us to disagree or agree to disagree with other believers. I'm talking about major misinterpretation. I'm talking about severe misinterpretation. I'm talking about misinterpretation that leads you to sin and leads you to walk away from the faith entirely. Misinterpreting God's word severely. Jesus said, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And these disciples, they hear leaven and they immediately think, where's the bread? 
They hear that warning from Jesus and they think, where's the bread? I mean, how far do these men go in connecting the dots from what Jesus was trying to say? Their interpretation was way off. They're thinking about physical bread and their lack thereof and not about Jesus' clear warning. And one of the signs is that their interpretation of Scripture or God's Word is way off. I've had men come to me and they say, I've found a hidden meaning in the Scriptures. Yikes. Or, hey, I found something in God's Word that nobody has ever found before. They're excited to tell me. One of my favorites is, and I've heard this, is that every Bible teacher since the Reformation has got this wrong, and I've got it right. Wow. And then I asked them, where did you hear that? Or where did you find this? It's so wild. You know what they tell me almost every time? YouTube. Or a podcast they listen to. They're learning their theology from YouTube or podcasts. Sure enough, you investigate a little bit and it's a false teacher. One of the telltale signs of the destructive influence of unbelief in someone's life is a dramatic misinterpretation of Scripture. And with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, we have an illustration of both wrongs. See, the Pharisees would add words to God's Word. They'll add law to God's law. They'll become legalistic with God's word. The Sadducees, they'll tell you, oh, that part of the Bible, that doesn't matter. Oh, that whole part about sin, avoid that, because that's outdated. It's, it's not related to the, to the now culture. You heard arguments like this? Very much how the Sadducees would treat Scripture. Both of them are wildly misinterpreting God's word. And it's a sign of the destructive influence of unbelief. We see the disciples misunderstand, misinterpret Jesus' word. The second sign of destructive influence of unbelief is that they will become dependent on self. They will start depending on self. Look at verse 7. They began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Shouldn't be looking at yourselves, you should be looking at me. Did I not feed you? Have I not fed thousands? This is earthly wisdom. Depend on yourself. Earthly wisdom that says be overprotective. Or be overprepared. Be self-dependent. You don't need anyone else. You just need you. There's earthly wisdom and you know, being overprotected, too dependent on yourself and your own resources in life. You know, God's word says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. Don't put all your eggs in this basket. It's going to burn. It's going to go away. So other scriptures that say, don't say that tomorrow we'll go to such and such town, do business, trade and make a profit. You don't know if you'll live tomorrow. 
Now, I'm not saying get rid of your insurance policies. I'm not saying waste your money. That's not the proper application here. I'm not saying, you know, take all the locks off your doors. But there is a point. There is a point where we become over self-dependent in our providing and we don't recognize the provision that comes from God. There's a point where we fill up our storehouses too full because our value is safety and our value is here on the earth. Or our value is comfort, and so that means our value is here on the earth. And we don't depend on God and his provision for us. Don't build your hedges too high or fill your storehouses too full. Be a dependent steward of your resources. A dependent steward. Looking at your money, your food, your safety, your time, and your stuff as a gift from the Lord for you to manage appropriately and for his glory. And if you're lacking in these things, if you're lacking in these things, like the disciples were, we forgot the bread. Don't look to yourself. Look to the Lord first. Depend on the Lord. See, the Pharisees, they would say, you lack stuff because you're not good enough. You forgot to wash. You forgot to walk or you forgot to eat right. And so you're immoral. That's why you lack good stuff. The Sadducees would say, Well, you lack stuff because you're not savvy enough. You're not worldly enough. You're not out there trying to make money and produce and become self-dependent on yourself. See, that's two opposite sides of the wrong spectrum. Both lead to self-dependence and not a trust and dependence on God. That's the posture of faith. The The posture of belief is trusting God to provide. Self-dependence is actually a sign of unbelief and distrust in the Lord. So two signs of unbelief that we see the disciples fall you know, under is misinterpreting God's word. Second, they depend on self. And the third thing is that they forget God's grace. They forget God's grace. Look at verse 9. Jesus says, do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Do you not remember the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? They forgot. Forgetfulness is one of the greatest strategies and tools of the enemy. Is that you would forget. We are forgetful, are we not? I have a hard time remembering names. But that only has little consequence, sometimes leads to awkward conversation. But to forget the gospel, to forget God's grace, to forget the promises of God, to forget that he's provided for me time and time and time again, too often do I sit there and think about all the things I don't have and don't remember and think about all the things God has provided for me. We forget too often the gospel. We forget too often God's love. We forget. We forget. The Pharisees would be happy for you to forget and start working on your salvation. To start working for your salvation. The Sadducees would 
be happy that you would forget and be focused on worldly distractions. Politics, power, land, money, whatever. Both are taking you away from the grace of God. Both are causing you to be distracted and forgetful of what God has done for you. You have been saved by grace through faith. Do you remember that? It was not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. It was because of Jesus Christ that you were made alive. Jesus Christ, do you remember who lived that perfect life you couldn't live? Do you remember that Jesus Christ took the death you deserved on your behalf as a sacrifice? Do you remember that he rose again from the dead? Do you remember that he said, if you believe in me, you have life in my name? Do you remember that he said that when I leave this place, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and when I come back, I'll bring you to myself? Do you remember when he said, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness? Do you remember what he said is most important for your life? Or are you distracted on earthly matters? Are you distracted trying to do, 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 perform, 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 almost like you forgot and you're trying to pay God back for what he did for you? That's not grace. Do not forget grace. On the one hand, don't abandon grace by giving in to your sin. Do we sin that grace would abound? May it never be. Let grace be the motivation for your purity, your holiness, and your sanctification. On the other hand, don't abandon grace by legalism and reverting back to those works-based goggles that we so easily go back to of religiosity. And we see the Christian life as a paying God back project. No, avoid those errors and remember God's grace. Gratitude and grace in the sufficient work of Christ. That's far more motivating and assuring than our own self-effort. Watch out for these signs. The influence of false teaching. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Watch out that you are not grossly misinterpreting God's word. Watch out that you are not depending on yourself in this life. Watch out that you're never forgetting God's grace. Beware of the destructive influence of unbelief in your life. Beware of those who add a little works to justification. Beware of those who teach a little worldliness will never hurt. Beware of following those who who sprinkle a little worldly into your social media stream, your Netflix shows, your podcasts, or YouTube. Beware of those who add a few things to God's word. Beware of those who take a little away of God's word. Beware of those who say, oh, that sentence isn't important, or that's been misunderstood for years. Jesus warns us, only a little leaven, just a little leaven, can take the whole lump. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And instead, instead, let us turn and let us face the Son of God. Listen to me clearly now. Jesus Christ is holy. Jesus Christ is true. Jesus Christ is pure. Jesus Christ is compassionate. Jesus Christ is loving. Jesus Christ is righteous. Jesus Christ is just. Jesus Christ is mercy. 
Jesus Christ is life. Jesus Christ is grace. He is gentle. He is glorious. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is King. Jesus Christ is stronger. He is Savior. And He is sufficient. Look at the Son. Look at the Son and believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as David prays in the song, we ask, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You've put more joy in our hearts than all those who have grain and wine abounding in their storehouses. It is true, Lord. We look to you and we love you. You've been so gracious to us. You've revealed Yourself to us in Your Son, Jesus Christ. We have seen His glory. We have seen His face. It shines bright to us through the Gospels, Your Word. Lord, give us faith. Strengthen our faith. Grow our faith. That we would depend on You, trust in You, and we would not look to ourselves. We would not become stubborn in unbelief. We would not turn to lesser glory, the distractions and earthly matters of this world. God, help us to rest in Jesus Christ and to love Him, to love You with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. In Jesus' name, Amen.